When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. A science story, huh? It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about overcoming obstacles and breaking down barriers whether those barriers are institutional or written into our genetic code. I recently overcame a much less significant obstacle. After our recent amazing show at Denison University, I was about to board my flight home from the Columbus airport when at the last minute it was canceled due to a nor'easter blowing into New York. And then they canceled every flight for the rest of the day. And as I'm waiting in line to rebook, I hear that flights for the next day are sold out, and then the next day... And I refused to accept this fate because we had another show back in New York in just a couple days and I had at least two episodes of The Bachelor waiting for me on my DVR and the threat of spoilers was constantly looming. So basically what I'm saying is the stakes were high. So I rent a car and I drive all the way home from Columbus, Ohio to New York City. To achieve this goal, I drank more Monster Energy drinks than any human being should ingest in a 24-hour period. I was stranded in a McDonald's parking lot snowdrift for a while until a few very kind college students helped me push my car out. But finally, I heard my Google Maps app say four of the most beautiful words, Welcome to New Jersey. I got home in time for the show. I got to see the women tell all about Ari, success all around. Except, you know, never do what I did. <laughs> it was a terrible idea. Our storytellers today are much better examples for you, and they're up against much more significant and complex challenges. Our first story is from Aletha Maybank. It was recorded at Caveat in New York City in February 2018. The theme that night was Destiny. Uh, when I was four years old, uh, someone asked me, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I replied, I want to work a cash register in a grocery store. Now, my mother was standing close by, and she overheard, but she didn't let me know anything at the time. But that Christmas, Santa brought me a Fisher-Price toy doctor's kit, and I wanted to be a doctor ever since then. And so I say that my destiny with science actually began as divine intervention from my mother. Science was a strong suit for me. I love science. I remember my big first uh, science fair that was in sixth grade. I chose to grow sugar cubes. I'm very clear at this point in my life, you can't grow sugar cubes, but I didn't know that. So three days before the science fair happens, I have like this gooey mess on strings and I have to figure out what in the world am I gonna do? So I find some styrofoam in my home. I cut it up in a cube, literally dip it in glue, dip it in sugar, tie a string around it, hung it from a glass, and voila, I had sugar cubes. 
So the night of the science fair, I'm standing by my desk. Uh, teachers are passing by, parents, my mother's passing by, and I am so sure somebody's going to figure all of this out. So the night comes close to an end, and nobody did. So I'm like, nobody knows that you can't grow sugar cubes, clearly. Um, and I ended up actually getting an A on the project. So I thought the night was over, and this was great. So we're walking out uh, of the school uh, to my mom's car on our way home. And all of a sudden, I hear a loud, familiar voice of one of my classmates yell, chocolate world, at my mom and I. Now, to provide a little context, I grew up in a suburb of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, and everything Hershey, Hershey Park, Hershey Chocolate World, Hershey Hotel, you name it, Hershey was about 15 minutes from my house. And the neighborhood that I grew up in was predominantly white. We were the only black family. And the school at that particular time, I was one of the only black kids in the sixth grade class. And so clearly, my skin reminded this little boy of chocolate, which may not seem like a totally big deal. And I want to say that that's not the worst that I had been called in school. But to a 12-year-old little girl who just wanted to fit in, it was. And this wasn't the first time that he called me it. It was like the hundredth time. And each time it was at the indifference of teachers. Each time I was utterly embarrassed and I just wanted him to stop. And this time was the first time that my mother was with me. I wasn't alone and I wasn't unarmored. So my mom grabbed my hand, darted back into the school, down the hall, into the classroom, and found him underneath a desk. He peered out from the desk, and my mom bent over, and she said, and I don't mean this towards you, but how would you like it if I called you white trash? Now, I had no clue what white trash meant at the time, and I didn't think it was really important. I was just happy that I had somebody with me to defend, to speak up, and to advocate on my behalf. And this wouldn't be the first time or the last time that my mom came to rescue my dignity. It actually became quite habitual out of necessity. There were multiple times in which she had to go to the school, and she was very clear that the educational system was undermining and underselling my own potential. There were letters and phone calls and visits for things like, why is Aletha placed in the remedial reading group? Or telling the guidance counselor she is going to apply to more colleges than just those safe schools that you recommended. Or in 12th grade, her having to sign a letter stating that if I failed AP English, it wasn't the school's fault. And no other parent had to do that. And so this kind of advocacy and interaction happened until the very end of school. So. A week before my senior year was over, it was announced that we would have our first multicultural day in high school. And I was super excited. We had never had a day like this before. And I was even more excited because they asked me, the leadership, to organize the African-American table. So the day came, and myself and two other classmates of mine organized the table. It was great. With the exception of the watermelon plate that was placed on our table without asking us, it was all good. So we had this flyer on the table that said, racism still exists, beware. A few students came to me and said, hey, can we have copies of this? And I said, sure, sounds great. I go to the secretary's office. I ask her, can she make copies? She says yes. She doesn't ask me any questions. She makes the copies. I take them, and I put them back on the table. The next morning, I got called to the principal's office out of that same AP English class. 
and was told to sit down. And the principal told me that skinheads came to him and said that if they are not allowed to pass out their materials and paraphernalia, why are they allowed to pass out theirs? And so the principal thought that the most equitable thing to do was to give me in-school suspension for failure to get permission to make copies. My mom tried to find it, fight it at the superintendent level, but lost. And so while most seniors are very excited at their very last day of high school, my very last day of high school, I sat in in-school suspension, very confused, upset, and very clear that I would never step foot in that school again. I wasn't a problem child. Um, I was considered a leader in many ways. But what I did learn is that no matter how good I was, that if there's a more powerful, more privileged system in people who thought I wasn't good enough, they were going to tell me so, and they would do whatever it took to block my own blessings. I learned that fear silences people. There were many opportunities where parents, teachers, and other students could have spoken up and advocated along with my mom that this just wasn't right, but they didn't. And I also learned that advocacy does not always yield the results we want when we want them. But what I mostly, mostly learned was just really from watching the courage of my mother in that moment. So I went on to college. Uh, I graduated from one of the top universities in the country with a concentration in natural sciences public health. I went on to medical school, and then I did all, went on to residency, pediatric residency. Uh, I chose peds because I love children. There's no real profound reason except for I just I really love children. But every Thursday when I was a, a resident, I would have to travel from the affluent area of where my hospital was for residency to a poorer neighborhood in New York City. Uh, it was predominantly black and plagued with the same familiar ills that most uh, poor neighborhoods are that have been um, experienced and have gone through cycles of disinvestment. And so on this one particular Thursday, in usual fashion, I walk up uh, to the door, I, I take off uh, the chart, and I walk into the room. And all of a sudden, I'm physically and, and struck by the physical size of the family that's sitting in front of me. It's a mother and her two kids, one girl, one boy. The 13-year-old girl, she weighs probably about 240 pounds. And the boy weighs almost the same. He's 10 years old, weighs about 239 or 38 pounds. The mom, I couldn't weigh her because she's not my patient, but she would have been identified as morbidly obese. When I looked down at the chart, I could see that there had been recommendations for um, sending these children off to a weight loss intervention several times. But then there was another note that said, well, you know, the insurance doesn't cover it, which was Medicaid. So essentially, there really was no plan for this family. So as a doctor in doctor fashion and what we do, I said, well, let's figure out a plan. And so our plan consisted of eating healthy foods, how we're going to do that, and then also how are we going to do more physical activity. And then I thought it'd be really good if we brought them back every single week and did weight checks. So the next week, the week after that, and the week after that, they came back. We did the weight checks, but of course, there was no weight loss. And what was revealed to me with every single visit was how clueless I was into the realities of this family's lives, because I didn't grow up in that particular neighborhood. 
And with every suggestion that I provided, there was a counterpoint by the mother that absolutely made a lot of sense of why she couldn't follow through, such as, well, the fresh fruits and vegetables really weren't that much in the neighborhood, she couldn't afford them. The physical fitness activities, there really weren't that many, and if there were, she would have to travel and she didn't have money to do that to send her kids. And then the violence within the neighborhood was so much, not only in the neighborhood, but also in her building, that she didn't feel comfortable having her children outside. And I understood that. But I also became very aware of my ignorance. And it was the first time that I realized that bad health had very little to do with people just being merely lazy or lacking motivation. And that was the dominant narrative in medical culture about poor and black and brown people, which it still really is today as well, as if it was scientific evidence. And the reality is, is that where my patients lived had way more influence over their health than I could as a physician within a doctor's office or, or the hospital. And so I had to really begin to grapple with, now I'm part of this institution that at times is uncaring, perpetuates racism, doesn't see people for the humanity, and surely doesn't advocate on their behalf, very similar to what I experienced as a child by the education system. And as a black person, as a professional, as a physician, I had to reconcile a conflict that I did not know people in the way that I thought I did and that these assumptions that I made were actually more harmful than they were helpful. And it was this experience along with many others that led me down the path to say that I wasn't gonna practice medicine anymore. So I finished residency, because I did. Uh, I bought time for two years and I worked as a hospitalist. And then one day I got a call and this, this path opened up that I totally didn't expect. And it was a friend of mine who said, well, there's this vacancy that's open in this preventive medicine public health space. And I had never heard of preventive medicine public health, another residency that's out there. But I remembered my public health roots as an undergrad. And then when I heard they actually pay for your master's in public health at an Ivy League school, I was like, I'm on board. So I signed up and I took the, the, the position. And it opened many doors since then. When I was a resident in preventive medicine, there was this emerging field of health equity and health disparities or health justice work that was happening across the country. And so I decided to focus and saturate most of my time and effort within that space. My practicum work, all my rotations were in health equity. There happened to be the first black health commissioner of a local health department that was close by. He heard about my work somehow or another. He called me up and he said, how would you like to start an office of minority health? Those were also popping up across the country. And I, it sounded scary and cool all at the same time, but the reality was I was still a resident. But approached my program director, she said, cool, let's work it out. I did both for a little while, but it was the absolute best professional decision I've made to my life today. It landed me squarely in the space of doing public health, health justice, advocacy, and really has created this foundation that I can do what I do today as the founding director of the Center for Health Equity in the largest and considered most premier health, urban health department in the world, the New York City Department of Health. I love my government role. I love my day-to-day. -day. My day-to-day -day is all about working to change the narrative around what creates health. 
It's also about transforming systems and institutions similar to what I grew up in to become an anti-racist multicultural organization. And that's the language that we use. And so my life experiences and all my skills have now come to this crossroads of and the forefront of health equity. And so I'm very clear that my path as a physician has been completely unique. I'm also very clear about the blessing that I have for my personal, my passion, my professional, and my political to all be aligned at this moment. And I'm mostly clear that my destiny with science has been and will continue to be cultivated by my mother's advocacy and protection, my own yearning for safety and dignity, and a steadfast commitment to validating the worthiness of myself and others. Thank you. That was Aletha Maybank. Aletha currently serves as a deputy commissioner in the New York City Department of Health and is the founding director of the Center for Health Equity, whose mission is to bring an explicit focus to health equity in all of the department's work. Prior to this role, she was an assistant commissioner in the New York City Health Department and served as the director of the Brooklyn office. She also successfully launched the Office of Minority Health as its founding director in the Suffolk County Department of Health Services. Aletha has also appeared or been profiled on Disney Junior's highly successful Doc McStuffins animated series, Essence Facebook Live in their festival's empowerment stage, MSNBC's Melissa Harris Perry Show, and more. Speaking of challenges in science, one of our favorite podcasts, Science for the People, takes on one of these challenges every week from circumcision to wildfires to surgery. Science for the People features long-form interviews with scientists and science writers covering issues where science meets your life. Their most recent episode delves into the downsides of the internet. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but the internet does have some drawbacks. Science for the People explores these drawbacks with expert interviews. And I have to say, it's worth it to listen just for the accent of their first interviewee alone. Amazing. So check it out, Science for the People, available on iTunes and pretty much wherever you find Story Collider. Our second story today is from Jocelyn Linder. It was recorded in December 2017 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was power. So I'm laying down in front of these three arguably hot guys, and they are discussing uh, whether or not to shave my groin, just the right side, Um, but it's a medical procedure. I'm actually being prepped for a liver biopsy, and I'm on a hospital gurney. And uh, the reason they're discussing my groin is because, I mean, other than the obvious piece of that sentence, um, they have to go in through your jugular and then thread a radioactive wire through your heart and into your liver. But if like for some reason they can't access the liver that way, they wanted a second access point in the femoral vein in your groin. So they were discussing whether or not to do that. Um, but like they, we all kind of had this, this moment all together because I was totally wide awake while this is going on, while this conversation is happening. I mean, I was the kind of awake that comes from having had a very good night's sleep the night before. And, you know, it was mostly because I wasn't even a little bit scared. 
And I know what you're thinking, like they don't just do liver biopsies, like there has to be a reason. But I understood something that I feel like even my doctors didn't. I had a rare genetic disease. It was so rare that only 14 people had ever had it before me. And 20 years earlier, my father had started to fill with this fluid called chyle, which is made up of lymph and emulsified fats and protein. And the problem is if you're leaking fats and protein, you're not digesting it. So over the course of three years, my father slowly starved to death. And we learned sort of in the subsequent 20 years that there had been other people that had had this similar disease, one of whom was my father's uncle, my great uncle. He had died in 1961 at the age of 34 of a very similar disease. In fact, he had been studied at the National Institutes of Health for 10 months. So we had some information. And over the course of 20 years, this team of researchers at Harvard, the Seidman Lab, had basically put together that the gene was X-linked. So just like very quickly, your like genetics lesson for the month, um, men pass male children a Y chromosome typically, and they pass girls an X. And my sister and I were not boys, so we had inherited this bad gene. And we also understood that in women, it presented differently. It was sort of a longer, you know, you had different symptoms over a longer period of time. So at this point, I had already started exhibiting symptoms. I had some lymphatic swelling, and I also had uh, my portal vein had just shriveled up and stopped working. And it's a vein that runs through your liver. It's a major channel. And what ends up happening is collateral pathways formed throughout my digestive tract, and they're dangerous. They could burst internally and, uh, and you know, cause serious problems or even death. So when my doctor was like, let's try a liver biopsy, I was like, okay, I mean, can't hurt. And I never had one. And then he said something else interesting. He said, you don't even need to be under anesthesia for this. And I was like, at the time, I don't even know. I was like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> So I was like, okay, so I show up and here I am, I'm like wide awake, totally confident and like not about to be medicated anytime soon. And the four of us, me and these three guys, are realizing that if I get shaved, like I'm awake, like I'm hanging out, we're all hanging out. So they're like, you're good, we're gonna just leave it. I'm like, thanks, thanks guys. So we move on, the doctor comes in, he's like, hey Joss, what kind of music do you wanna listen to? Like, this isn't, like, already, like, a horrible day. And so, you know, I'm like, th so here's the thing. Like, if I'm in my car alone, I basically listen to, like, whatever's on next. Like, I'll be like, seek or next. Like, I'm like, next, next, next. Like, that's what I listen to in my car. So to have to answer this question, like, quickly felt very overwhelming to me. And, uh, and in the last five years, I've had time to think about it. And it's one of, you want one of three things in, in, in your music during a liver biopsy. You want either to be soothed, to your doctor to be calm, or to look cool in front of everybody in the room. So for, I've realized like for, to calm me, it's the kinks, and for my doctor, it's Sade, and for it to be cool, it's Lauren Hill. But I picked R.E.M., which is like, like no, no big deal. Like REM, they're, they're fine. Like the fact that they are the soundtrack to my liver biopsy is so weird, but there it is. So REM comes on, the procedure starts, the doctor threads the, the wire through my jugular, which like 
so it was numbed. It doesn't hurt, but you can feel the pressure. You can literally feel it like moving through your body. And like, and then as it goes down, you feel the pressure moving downward. And it felt like I had a wire hanger going from shoulder to shoulder. Like if I had been standing up, I would have had amazing posture. Um, and so finally, like, you know, things are moving along and the doctor all of a sudden, like his words change, his voice becomes clipped and urgent. And he's like, Jocelyn, be still. I don't know what's going on. What's happening here? And I am like in a state, suddenly like abject terror. Like I'm so afraid and I'm freaking out. And R.E.M. is like, stand in the place where you are. And I'm like, yes. And then they're like, now face north. I'm like, no, I'm staying right here. I'm not moving. I'm so still. And then like as quickly as it started, it stops. And he pulls the wire out. And he doesn't say anything, and I went home and finished my work day. Um, and a couple days later, he calls, and I learned two things. One, my liver is, and I quote, gorgeous. <laughs> and two, the doctor didn't understand why the pressures in my abdomen didn't make any sense. The best I can do to sort of explain this to you guys is like the heart pumps. And there should be a correlation between the pressure then that fills your, that is, the blood is moving through your body. So there should be a correlation between your heartbeat and your blood pressure throughout your body. This was not happening in my abdomen. And nobody understood why. So he asked if I would come back and undergo a second procedure. I was like, sure. So a couple weeks go by, and I showed up for this procedure. And because nothing can ever be easy at the hospital. I had to pee in a cup, but I couldn't. So if any of you have ever been like able to be pregnant and had a medical procedure, you know you have to take a pregnancy test. So like I tried to pee for like two hours, but I was totally dehydrated. It was a nightmare. Finally, like I came out, it was like as lame as that sounds. And I came out and I was like, I just like kind of implored them. I was like, look, you know, my marriage is great, but like ever since this like portal vein thing, we have not been having a lot of sex. I'm not pregnant. If we could just move this along, I would be so grateful. And they said, okay. So, but like, so just so you know, like a couple of things were in place at this point totally shaved, Sade, and all the drugs, like every drug that I could possibly have. So that was awesome. The doctor comes in, they do the procedure, everything's fine. A few days later, I find out two things. The first is that because of our gene, scientists and doctors are learning something about, that we didn't know, we kind of knew, but we didn't really know that much about. But our livers sort of have their own heartbeat. And I mean this like at a much smaller level. It's nothing like your heartbeat. But the portal vein actually channels blood with its own rhythm. And because my portal vein had shriveled, it was no longer doing its part in the body. And therefore, my blood pressures weren't aligned. So the second thing I learned is that I was pregnant. <laughs> so... This is like problematic on a number of levels. You know, first of all, I had just undergone a radioactive procedure. But the second thing was, I had a system of dangerous gastric varices running through my body. When you're pregnant, your blood supply actually doubles. And I was told that I had a one in four chance of dying if I carried this baby. I was also told, even worse, this scared me even more, that if I tried to have this baby, there was a great chance I, would, I could miscarry or that the baby would be born prematurely or even very sick. And so 
my husband like immediately was like, I just don't feel good about this. I don't think we should do this. And it wasn't because, you know, he didn't want to raise a sick child, but he didn't want to lose me. So the problem was I was 37 and I was like, this is my baby. Like, I'm going to have this baby. So we decided we weren't really going to talk about it until I underwent a procedure called a CVS, which was what was available at the time. And it could test an embryo in its earliest stages to see about its genetic makeup. I scheduled the appointment. The day before, Hurricane Sandy hit. And NYU was unreachable. I couldn't find anything out. And so just to explain this, if you have a rare genetic disease that doesn't even have a name, you can't just call somebody else and say, hey, can you, can you give me a CVS and find the gene for cystic fibrosis or what have you? You don't have the language. So I needed to reach somebody, and I absolutely couldn't. So as the days went by, the thing was, I was incredibly early in this pregnancy, and I just kind of felt like if it kept going, as each day went by, I wasn't sure I would be able to do anything about this pregnancy. But the other thing that started to occur to me was that I had actually witnessed my grandmother as she stood over the deathbeds of two sons. And I had always thought to myself, I will never do that. I have a choice. She didn't have a choice. She didn't know. But I knew. The other thing is, just to give you a little bit of background about these rare genetic diseases, when you think about a disease like cystic fibrosis, which is another monogenetic disease, scientists believe that gene first mutated in Europe 52,000 years ago, which means that it's been more than 3,600 generations. That means that more than 100,000 people live with this horrible disease, and hundreds of thousands more carry it. Our family had had a gene mutate 120 years ago in my great-grandmother. Sorry, my great-great-grandmother. Five generations later, there were only this few of us, and we had an opportunity that I, you know, it was kind of incredible. It's like we maybe weren't going to be able to cure this disease, but we might be able to stop it. So I finally decided that I had to terminate this pregnancy. My husband and I agreed, we made the appointment, and we did it. And I have to say I have no regrets, because today there are 25 children in the sixth generation since our gene first mutated, and none of them has the family gene. Thank you. Jocelyn Linder. Jocelyn's work has appeared in the New York Post as well as on Morning Edition, Joe's Pub, and The Life of the Law. Her book, The Family Gene, comes out in paperback on June 12, 2018. I highly recommend it. Before we say goodbye today, I just want to remind you, our first ever fundraiser in celebration of our eight-year anniversary is taking place this Tuesday, May 1st, in New York City. We would absolutely love to see you there. I will be hosting, along with the delightful Ed Young, New York Times bestselling author of I Contain Multitudes. Our guests will be Ariel Duhame Ross, a journalist covering climate change for Vice, Josh Gondelman, an Emmy-winning comedian, Joe Handelsman, associate director for science in the White House under President Obama. I know you've heard me talk about this many times over the past few weeks, but there's one more thing that you may not know about. There will be gift bags 
and fancy grilled cheese. So just think on that. And when you're done thinking, go to storycollider.org and get your tickets. Help us continue to bring you these stories from all over the world. Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker. That's me. With help from our amazing staff and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from a show produced by me. Again, my name is Aaron Barker. As well as Paula Croxon. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat for hosting these shows and to all the unsung heroes of medicine, whether they're doctors or patients or anything in between, and to R.E.M. for being the surgery soundtrack that we didn't know that we needed. Thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.